Oh, no, I was going to go, wait, oh, no, I'm going to record this podcasting really quick, and then I was going to go buy hot dog buns. Hello! Welcome back to Everything's Relative. Hi, I'm Eve Sturgis. I'm the host. I'm here to talk about DNA discoveries the really shocking kind that thrust people into existential crisis and identity upheaval and family drama, sometimes legal challenges, the really messy kind of DNA discovery. And I don't know if you know this or not, but these types are happening more and more frequently as direct-to-consumer DNA tests become more and more popular. I'm actually recording this smack dab in the middle of what we lovingly call sibling season. It's what uh, we in this community call the winter and spring months right after Christmas when everyone who was gifted a DNA kit in their stocking starts to get the results back and the secrets start coming out of the woodwork. If you are human on this earth, it's almost impossible to exist without seeing the marketing for Ancestry and 23andMe. We all know they go so hard at the holidays. So here we are, sibling season. Welcome. Eve Wiley has a bunch of siblings. Uh, I'm so grateful to have finally tracked her down for a podcast session. Eve Wiley is a prolific advocate within the donor conception community. And I will tell you why. Eve and her mother are one of the many, many victims of fertility fraud. And here's the craziness or wildness. I shouldn't call it crazy. Do you remember Jessica from season two? She talked about being shocked and appalled to discover that her mom's fertility doctor was actually her biological father. Y'all, Eve is part of the same family. Eve and Jessica are half-sisters. Also, let's get real about what's important here. Her name is Eve. So I had to interview her. I don't know... If anyone out there has a unique name, but for me, this is a very big deal to meet another person with my name. Uh, It might be the closest thing I'll ever get to experiencing what it's kind of like to have genetic genetic mirroring. I hope, hope, first of all, let's see if I can say it right, genetic mirroring. And then second of all, I really hope I'm not offending anybody with that reference. Um, I don't mean to say that have someone having the same name as me is the same feeling as seeing someone that looks like me. I don't know. Take it with a grain of salt. Take it with a grain of Eve. I don't know. Okay. So it, this was all a very big deal. It was very hard for me to stay cool. It's still hard for me to stay cool. Are you listening to this? Oh, check it out. Okay. But most importantly, listen to Eve's story and the way that she's found purpose as an advocate at the legislative level. It's very, very impressive. Go ahead and roll the tape. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, Eve. How are you? I'm good. 
<laughs> have you, I mean, we, we have like important things to talk about, but what I mostly want to focus on is our names. Um, have you ever met any other, did you ever meet another Eve growing up? Yeah, that's a really good question. No, Eva, Ava, uh -huh. never an Eve or an yeah. Evie. I knew an Evie. That uh -huh. was my nickname. But what about you? No, I never did. It was like a total anomaly. All I wanted to do was like be a Katie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I could just like a Sarah. I really liked the idea of being one of the Sarah's like in class with the where you have to everybody had to use the last initial, you know, like the last name initials. It was like Sarah R, Sarah F, Sarah, <laughs> like all I wanted. Um ours were Ashley. There were a bunch of Taylors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I usually just say that I'm a fertility fraud advocate, um victim of fertility fraud. I'll write it down just to make sure. <laughs> in case I have a moment of advocate. I guess I'm technically donor conceived, but you know, some people feel like I'm not donor conceived. So um, uh, kind of stay in my fertility fraud lane. <laughs> well, <laughs> people say you're not donor conceived because of the fertility yeah. fraud element. Yeah, it's been a it's been a thing. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, no, not, and I, I should say, not most people, just some people have pointed it out. I'm hmm. like, well, I still kind of feel like I'm DCB, but okay. <laughs> I was supposed to be. Right. Wow. So depending on who your donor, hmm, I have a lot to say about that. Okay. So why don't you just tell me what kind, you know, what happened? Um, how did this all, how did this all happen for you and how did you get so involved and, and what do you do? What are you, you know, kind of, where are you at now? Okay. Do you want the long version, the elevator pitch? You know what, what kind of, what kind um, of do you have here? give me the, give me the long version. I mean, we have, we have an, we have almost an hour. Okay. Um, and I'll just like, can you still see me? Yeah. I guess okay, see. great. So if I have questions, um, I will raise my hand only because that helps. Uh, so I don't have to interrupt you, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. And I, and I talked to Jessica, um, Stevina, I don't know how to say her last name. Stevina. Yes. Jessica. Yeah, my half -sister. Um, yeah. Your half sister. I talked to her a long time ago. Um, which was totally just a coincidence that, and I had already been following you on Facebook or had connected with you. Um, and I think it was her that, that was talking to it. She was like, I have a half sister named Eve. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, There's only one of them I know of. Yeah, yeah. That's my half sister. She's awesome. That's so cool. All right. So you tell me, tell me maybe how you grew up or where you grew up a little bit or what life was like, or what, um, you know, kind of yeah. where you were at leading up to all of this. Yep, totally. Um, so I am from a really small town in East Texas. It's called Center, Texas. It's 5,000 people. We say that it's life behind the pine curtain. Um, it is total rural America. So my parents struggled with infertility and they went about 30, 35 miles away to Dr. Kim McMorris 
um, who was the only kind of OB that was doing fertility type stuff in that area. And so my dad gave a sperm sample and um, he was, you know, a little bit older. He was in his fifties, you know, kind of past, you know, what at that time we would say was of, you know, reproductive age and, um, and his sperm sample back with low motility. And so what, what happened was, is he had these varicose veins that were wrapping around the testes and it was decreasing sperm production, but that is actually something that um, can can be taken care of with a surgery. So he had the surgery and then he had another sample done and it, and it came back as, um, you know, a little bit higher motility, but not low motility anymore. And so it was determined for my mom that maybe she had some unexplained, um, infertility things going on. So there was secondary factor there as well. So what Dr. McMorrie suggested was that they look at a sperm donor. And at the time, this was in 1985 when they started this process. And Dr. McMorris handed them a list from California Cryobank. And this was just one sheet of paper. And each donor had the donor number. And then you look down the line, it had that physical characteristics, level of education, blood type, interest, and that's it. So just one line. And on that sheet of paper, there are all these marks. And so they circled certain ones that they wanted. Finally, they decided on donor 106. And so they circled that one and then wrote this one underneath it. Um, they went through several procedures with this donor and another donor. And then finally, I was conceived. So I was born in um, July of 1987. And about three months later, my parents were pregnant naturally without the use of a donor. And so I have a little sister who is 14 months younger than I am. So we grew up, and to be clear, I look nothing like my dad or my mom. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, looking back now and looking at that donor profile, it was completely different from what my, my dad looked like. So my little sister has this olive skin complexion. She has this very, you know, dark brown hair, brown eyes. My mom has black hair, green eyes. Um, and my dad had that looked, you know, like my sister. So I was this, you know, toehead, bright blonde little girl with blue eyes. So this whole backstory about fertility, you did not know it growing up. No, I did not know it growing okay. up. Okay. When I was seven years old, my father, the first Doug, he passed away from cardiomyopathy, which is a heart disease. Mm -hmm. And my mom is a nurse. She's an RN. And she, at the time was a school nurse for our school she started to realize and recognize that medical information is really important because now my little sister had this, this, this medical plan of heart echoes and, you know, very important things centered around her heart that that's preventative healthcare. My mom didn't know what that was for me. And so she started to get on Yahoo messenger boards, trying to find any information. She was calling California cryobank, joining groups like single mothers by choice, um, you know, just really reaching out. And this is before anybody was really connected, you know, and it was a lot of snail mail and handwritten letters. Yeah. This is like, this is like 1996, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Like, so this is before any kind of organized effort. Products when internet was prodigy, you had to like plug it into your computer and it would do that like long dial up thing. So California Cryobank told her that they, that when I turned 18, and I had my medical records or her medical records, I should say, 
um, that that they would attempt to update that medical information of the donor. And so that was kind of in her mind that was going to be the plan for this. And and she didn't tell me she which I understand it now as an adult. It must be really hard to have a seven year old whose father has passed away. And and you have to say, well, but that's not your biological father because you are actually donor conceived and we use another person. And, you know, I barely understood and can grasp the, you know, the concept of death, much less something much more complex and complicated. So I, I do understand, you know, why she didn't tell me. I mean, I think you and I can both talk about it as therapists. It would make almost zero sense to explain donor conception at that time. To a seven-year-old who has experienced the loss of a father with those complexities, like, totally, totally not, not the time and place. No, definitely not. I think it would have been, you know, some sort of, um, you know, compacted trauma. Trauma. Mm -hmm. It it would have been, um, and not really having the resources to really work through that either. And there was also very much the social stigma around infertility. And I'm not sure my mom knew anyone else who had a donor conceived, um, child at the time. And so, you know, those support systems were not in place at that time. So she decided she was going to do her own investigative work. Part of that was continuously emailing California Cryobank. So then we fast forward to when I'm 16. And like I said, my mother is a, she was a school nurse. So I had this habit of getting onto her email and looking to see if there was like some juicy gossip in between teachers or if a teacher emailed her, maybe I didn't do too good on a test and I just needed to delete it real quick or, you know, just (laughs) those kinds of things. And I I kept coming across this like California cryobank. I didn't know what a cryobank was. So I'm clicking on them. And remember, I'm from rural America, grew up on a farm. So I started seeing stuff about sperm. Well, bull sperm is like always talked about because, you know, my family, we had cattle and that, that's, that was not weird to me. But what was weird was at the bottom of the email, it said, my daughter doesn't know her birth date is 728-1987. Oh my God, that's my birthday. And so it was in that moment at 16 years old, late at night, that I figured out that I was donor conceived. Oh, do you remember how? Oh, okay, yeah. I was gonna say, do you remember how you felt at the time? Yes. Well, I. So it's it's interesting. Um, you know, especially how I felt at 16 year old Eve with no information. I was excited because I had lost my dad everything started to make sense to me. There was a reason. I always knew there was a secret. I just didn't know that I was the secret. And so all of those those things where I just kind of felt this thought unknown my entire life, when people would joke with me that I was adopted, when the first thing people would say to me when we would be out as a family was, oh my gosh, you look nothing like anybody here. And you know why my interests were so different and why I felt this forced identity, it made sense because that's what we do with family secrets, right? We, we try and protect them so much. And so it really changes our relational patterns with each other. And so for my mom, she was seeing this identity of who she thought my, my biological father was. So while everybody else in my family is in the medical field, while I even had interest in medicine and, you know, things like that, she was really pushing this journalism and, you know, political type thing. And, and, and a lot of times it felt really forced. <laughs> That's um, funny. Now, now I I can I say all of I know right <laughs> I mean I don't know why it's funny but it's like it's weird I just have never I, that's the first time I've heard of that 
of a parent um, really trying to like hone in on the donor, the the donor traits. Yeah, she, I, I think that that's, that's why, because she just had that, you know, one thing, I think that she thought that that genetic blueprint was kind of like a guide on how to raise me, right? Mm-hmm. A very limited guide on, on what I would be like when I grow up, what my interest would be. And so, um, so yeah, so it, it at 16 year old, it was, I was excited. And, and then also I was naive in this and I was like, oh my gosh, I still have a dad. And, you know, in my head, I was going to find my biological father in my head. I was going to have this Disney princess, you know, everything's beautiful and wonderful. and It's going to work out. I wasn't aware of, you know, the unintentional consequences and the complexities that, um, that exist within, you know, recipient parents and being donor conceived mainly because I didn't have a soundboard for any of those things, but also I was, I was 16. So the next morning I go in and my mom's getting out of the shower I'm in front of her and I'm like, mom, I know Doug is not my dad. And through her reflection in the mirror, she, she just looks at me. She's like, what are you talking about? And then just started bawling. And I'm like, it's okay. Like everything's fine. I understand. And, you know, we, we worked through, you know, the whole thing and, um, but, you know, I think it was also just that initial, initial response. And I wanted to know who, who is he? And, and I slowly started to get frustrated that, that there were so many roadblocks to, to figuring out who I was because I'm 16. I'm also hearing all the time, you have to go find yourself. And I'm like, well, I don't know who half of myself is. And, you know, I just remember just looking in that mirror and just trying to separate the features of who's my mom, who's my dad and, you know, what is he like? And just, you know, kind of like daydreaming through that. So a few years go by, I turn 18 and we have my mom's medical records and I submit them to California cryobank and they say that they are going to try and contact him to update his medical records. And so, I mean, I was checking in like probably every month. I'm like, have you heard from me yet? Have you heard from him yet? And no, they hadn't. Yep. So, so they didn't, they refused to contact him at all until you were 18, regardless of what kind of medical history might, might be important. Right. And to my, to my knowledge, I was one of the first or second that had even reached out to them to have that connection with their biological donor. Hmm. And so I think that they were still kind of working through what those policies looked like, but for them, they were mailing him this like blank medical form and asking him to update it. To fill it out. Yeah. So I don't think that there was, you know, probably would have been an old phone number anyway, or it's not like he had a cell phone. So. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, they're just like snail mailing it. It was probably going in the trash, but he was, you know, also traveling all around. So, but it took about a year and, and he finally called me. He's like, what is this? I keep getting this. And I go, you have a, um, a daughter who is asking for medical information and would like to connect with you. And so what I did is I sent a letter to California cryobank. Mm -hmm. And at this time it was actually an email. And I was like, when you connect with him, can you please forward him this email or this letter? Cause I really felt like this is my, this is my one chance. I just, if I can ask them to be an advocate for me, but I I want him to know one, I'm financially stable and secure. I'm, you know, emotionally stable because I had read so much on these message boards about these donors, their first thought was they want money from me, which is not true. 
And so I was trying to kind of put all of those um, those fears, projected fears that I was projecting on him to, to rest. So he read the email, he sent a response back, and then we cut out California Cryobank, and then we started emailing and phone calls and it was, it was amazing. This was my biological father. And I had all these questions and he is just this, such a sweet um, person. And just, he's just an amazing person. And he, and and he's in California or is he? So he's at, he actually, he's in LA now, but at the time he was living in Oregon. Okay. But like, yeah. And you're so, but, but West coast and you're in Texas. Right. And you're so, eight, you're 18. Are you in college yet? I am. So I, yes, I'm in college. And um, a few months after we made contact, he actually flew to Austin to come and meet me for the first time. Oh, wow. Which was amazing. Um, and it was on that trip that we had run into someone that I knew and we hadn't had that conversation yet. Like, how do I... I don't, who are you to me? And so I just, you know, just for clarity, I was like, Hey, this is my dad, Steve. And it was after that, he was like, Hey, you know what? I really liked that. I, I hope that you continue to call me your dad. And and we really talked about, you know, you are my biological daughter. I'm your biological father. And, um, you know, if you're cool with that, I, I really want to develop that, you know, this relationship and I've missed out on 18, 19 years of your life. And I want to know more. And so it just, I mean, it was awesome. I had my dad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like exactly what you hoped would happen or what. Yeah. And what a lot of people hope will happen. Exactly. And it, it didn't, it, for us, there, nothing felt forced. Nothing felt odd. It just, it, it was what it was. And we just moved forward with it so much so that when I decided to get married, we asked um, my dad, Steve, to officiate the wedding. We got married in Cabo and he was our officiant. And it was, you know, at the time when I was getting married, everybody in the audience was crying Mm -hmm. except for me because I'm like, I don't want to run my pictures. But what I learned later is that the bartenders got confused and they were mixing flavored vodka with regular vodka. So they were all just really drunk, (laughs) which made them really emotional. But at the time, I was like, this is so beautiful. And wonderful. The most romantic wedding anyone's ever had. <laughs> I know. And then I'm like, wait, what's happening right now? So, um, so yes, yeah, so, I mean, it was wonderful. And then, and then I had kids and, and our kids call him Papa and he, you know, we spend holidays together and, and it's just, you know, he's dad. Mm-hmm. And how so, is your, how is your relationship with your mom during all of this? And how is she about Steve? Yeah, no, she's great. I mean, she was so supportive mm-hmm. when we started this when I was 18. Um, you know, there were conversations about mom, why didn't you just tell me? Like, you lied to me about who who I am and the very, you know, foundation of me. And we we worked through that through, you know, when you're seven mm-hmm. years old, that whole thing. And she didn't know how to tell me, and there wasn't a guide for this, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, but she had this huge, thick, uh, folder, this green folder, and she printed off every email that she had ever sent in response. She got back, she would print off things from Yahoo messenger boards. And she's like, I, I didn't, there wasn't a book. There wasn't, there wasn't anything, but I knew that I could hand you this and you would at least have something, but you could also look at the dates to show you that I've been working on this since you were seven years old, that I was going to tell you, I just didn't know how to tell you. So I kind of felt like she wanted me to find it out myself. 
to get those emails up. But anyway, we got we got there eventually. But but she said she she met dad. They talk. They have a wonderful relationship. It was so weird. The weirdest part about this was introducing my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, mom, here's dad. Dad, here's mom. I'm your kid. Hi. Yeah. Um. And not to mention, these are two people that are polar opposites. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that they would. I know for sure that they would have never chosen each other to have a child with. Right. Because you've got you know, small town, uh, Southern lady, and then my dad from Oregon. And so it's, you know, just culturally, they were just, you know, so different, but it worked. And, and they just, you know, both came together and for me and are just so loving and accepting of each other. And and they've carried that for 14 years now. Wow. If only that was the happy ending. If only that was the happy ending. And, and because, then what happened? <laughs> well, just like in every fairy tale story, there is a dark and twisted point at some point. Um, so our son Hutton is our firstborn. And he was having these unexplained medical issues. And our entire team here at Dallas, they could not figure out what was wrong with him. When he was born, he had something called pyloric stenosis, which is relatively common in firstborn boys. Um, But he had a pylorotomy that should have fixed it. And if it didn't fix it, he should have outgrown it when he was one, but he did not. So he was vomiting after every feeding. I had to feed him every hour and a half, 24 hours a day. He could not tolerate formula. So it was just breastfeeding. And I mean, I, I didn't sleep longer than an hour and a half and then he'd throw it all back up and then I'd start all over again. So mm-hmm. I mean, it was horrible. So by, by, by the time he was three, I was still nursing him and I was about seven and a half months pregnant. Oh my and gosh. I was like, I can't, I can't do this with a newborn. Everybody's telling me that he wasn't eating real food. I was like, everybody's telling me that he's fine. He's going to outgrow it. Something is wrong. No one will listen to me. I kept mm-hmm. being told you're a first time mom, basically that I was overreacting. Mm-hmm. So I went to, um, this, this functional medicine doctor who kind of works from, you know, a, a her, like a, like a genetic expression yeah. and nutritionist and things like that. Cause he was yeah. having food allergies. A holistic, holistic naturopathic approach that includes genetic history. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, um, so went to him and he said, how about you do 23 and me plus health so I can get this genetic variation. So I was like, whatever I'll do. Tell me what mm-hmm. to do. Just this good. And so we did that and, and it came back, he called and he said, Hey, he has celiac disease. And I was like, what's celiac disease? Oh my God. Yeah. And so he walked me through this whole thing of, you know, autoimmune disorders and how it's like, you know, an umbrella of this and, you know, it's likely hereditary and someone in my family, but he could see that it's coming from my side. And I'm like, nobody in my, f- I've never heard anyone talk about a gluten intolerance or, like, you know, we anything. love bread. Yes. We are from Texas. <laughs> Bread, butter, and pizza. Yeah. So it's, I was like, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so I, I was, but again, you know, I'm so focused on getting him okay. Mm-hmm. And then I had a newborn and I had also taken ancestry, you know, a few months prior. And um, I, but I did not know how these websites worked. And so I did not know what a Cinnamorgan was. Um, I did not know what, what the percentages meant or the platforms. I knew nothing. And so, which is normal, by which the way, which is normal. Let's yeah, like, sure why everybody know? Knows. You know, one is supposed to like, 
we're not why would you why would you know that no um, no i i know how to do a genogram from mm -hmm. grad school sure, totally grad school yeah <laughs> it does a little different than this you're like circle squares got it we were um on vacation and i i started getting these emails from 23andme that was like you have a first cousin and it gives you know, it gives you the predicted relationship and so i'm like how do i have a first cousin so i go on there and i look and i'm like man hold on i think i found some family secrets because my mom has two brothers but they don't have children mm -hmm. that are biologically there so i'm like ooh. and then i was like okay well maybe dad's brother and sister i knew they didn't have children but i was like maybe you know they're theirs i'm not really sure so again it, that was the predicted relationship so I'm talking to my mom about it. My mom calls back a little bit later. She's like, hey, Eve, I think that those are actually your half siblings. And I was like, wait, what? So then I go and look and and yeah, they're my half siblings. And I reach out to them. And the first one is, you know, from my area of town, which made sense, right? Mm -hmm. Dr. McMorris was probably the doctor. And I just thought, you know, bless his sweet little heart. Like he just didn't really understand you know how this process worked but he knew it was dr mcmorey so i was explaining to him the difference between a donor and a doctor and at this time y'all are thinking it's steve's right because steve so was a donor was, he was donor 106 so probably lots of people use donor 106. and i knew that right. california cryobank had told me that he was a popular donor and they couldn't tell me how many but they said that i had quite a few half siblings that and, and that's just the ones that 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 were reported essentially that's not the ones that didn't get reported. So I knew, but they also told me that I was one of the oldest ones. So I, you know, at the time I was thinking that maybe they hadn't taken the test or, you know, this is 2018. So, um, so I'm talking to my half brother and we're, you know, going through the whole thing and, um, you know, it all adds up. Right. So then I call dad and I'm like, Hey dad, I don't want to be the middleman for these conversations. And I don't want anyone to 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 think that i am pushing them to have what we have i want you guys to decide for yourselves what that relationship looks like so can you get on 23andme and have that platform so he's like okay so he gets the test and he he does the whole thing so then another one i keep going down the list of all my half siblings and trying to find them and um connect with the next one and and he's 13 years older than I am. And so I was like, huh, that's kind of weird, but whatever. Hey brother, what's up? And, right. You know, the, the, all these red flags are just kind of coming towards me. Cognitive distance is an amazing thing, right? <laughs> so then I get to another one and he's actually not on social media, but I find his LinkedIn. I send him a message. I'm like, hey, I think I'm your half sister. He immediately calls me. Um, and he's like, no, I don't think I'm donor conceived. And so here I am thinking, <laughs> oh man, I, I know. I'm like, I know me either. I'm like, this is how everyone goes. Nobody thinks that they're donor conceived. Um, so here I am thinking that I'm dropping this, you know, life-changing bomb on him. And he's like, I look like my dad. I'm like, yeah, that's what we all say. Look like my brother. Yep. We say that too, you know, just going through this whole thing. And, and he's, he's like, well, let's go, let's go look at our connection. So we go look at our connection and, you know, it, it, it could be first cousin, it could be um, half sibling. And so we were kind of towards the lower end, towards first cousin. like, well, I'll humor you. Tell me about your uncles. And he said that he only had one uncle and his name is Kim McMorris. And my 
world stops because Kim McMorry is, is my mom's fertility doctor. And right. so how could, how could Steve fit in this picture and how could Kim McMorry fit in this picture when I'm looking at the DNA evidence and it says that Adam is my first cousin. Right. And meanwhile, Steve has done 23andMe, but you guys aren't all together in the same room to say like, wait a minute, he doesn't have any of these connections and why aren't we all right? Or they are, right? Yeah. Okay. No, so, that's correct. Because so it's his, all sort of up in the air. His, his yeah. results hadn't gotten back yet because I had so this is like fresh, him. right? Oh, super right. This is, I mean, he, I'm not even sure if he had sent it off yet. He had okay. ordered it online. And so, so there was, there was no other information. And, and that's why I waited to tell him because, you know, I was trying my mind so desperately, like, how do I, this can't be true. This is not true. I'm not, I'm not 30 years old, starting over for the third time in my life. Who the hell am I? And, and this time the story wasn't, wasn't a happy ending. And, and I, I knew this man, I, I grew up in this community and, and I knew that he was not going to accept me with open arms, especially around, because there's so much deception around my conception. I had my mother's medical notes that said donor 106. AIM is artificial insemination mixture. AID is artificial insemination by donor. And in my conception date, it said A. ID. There was no mixture for this. Right. And, and you are, and I'm just curious when you are, when you're looking at, I mean, when you're talking to this half brother who says like, well, my uncle is this Dr. McMorry. Um, did you think immediately that means he's my dad and that means Steve is not my dad. Like, did you, did you have all that realization in that time? Yes. You did. Wow. It okay. was immediately. I'm not sure. But I think I'm yeah, just like, yeah. been like, well, that's just totally weird coincidence. Yeah, like, I, it would have taken me a while. It would have taken me a while. I, I just, I just knew. And it just, it felt like being 16 again, where it was like, that makes sense. Even though I, I looked like Steve and I looked like, you know, his social children and, and all of that. It, it just, I, it, it was like if you have like the flip book or in the movies when it's like it flashed before your eyes and you just come to that just super sharp moment of of this is it that's still at the end of it that's what it was it was like oh my god that's my biological father and man that that was hard that was very hard because i also had to make some decisions there was so much deception around my conception my mom didn't know the truth steve didn't know the truth and so it was like do I pretend like I never figured this out so my life can go on completely undisrupted and then I keep this family secret now I'm the you know protector of this or do I have to let them know and I found myself doing exactly what I did when I was 16 years old my mom was with us I ran upstairs I'm like I've got to tell you something and um and I just told her I was like mom Kim McMorris is my biological father and she just looks at me she's like what yeah, and that would. Oh, my gosh, I'd be so confused. She didn't believe me. And at first she kind of like laughed, like, what are you, are you drunk? What is wrong with you? And and so I just go through this this whole thing. And and then she went into shock to the point where she was asking the same questions over and over again. And she was physically shaking. Oh, and my God. My husband is like 
do you need a blanket or do you need an ambulance? I don't, uh, what do I do here? I mean, she could not filter the information I was telling her and I was talking hundred miles an hour and I'm like, here's this evidence and this and this and this and this, and, you know, just trying to, to figure it out. And, and it hurt so bad because, you know, in, in that moment is when I really started to realize, my God, like, like my existence is, is hurting the people that I love the most. And even though I had no control over that, but there's still that kind of irrational thing that I had to process and separate when it came to the deception around my conception. And then I started to get these feelings of, you know, fear of abandonment. Like I knew my mom wasn't going to, to leave me, but I, I didn't know about Steve. Would this be too hard for him to handle? And would he be like, Oh, this is what, um, and you're not my real biological child, you know, maybe it ends here. And and that was a very big fear for me. And, and one of the reasons why I really had to wait until his DNA test came back so I could, you know, tell him that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also hard for my mom because my mom was saying things marginalizing that I found very triggering. And, and, you know, as, you know, donor conceived people in the adoptee community, you know, those marginalizations look like, oh, but you know, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for him, or I'm so happy you're alive. And, you know, those things were only reinforcing the trauma that I felt because I I had to tell my mom, like, mom, you, it's okay for you to have opposite feelings about this. You can be so happy that I'm your daughter and you can wish that, that you would not have any other daughter, but me, but you can also honor and have a space for the trauma that that you have felt and have endured. And, you know, the ends here don't justify the means of it always. And so we really had to work really hard to kind of separate that and, and really give space so we could heal through that. Mm-hmm. And that was hard. And, and I see that, which is one of the reasons why I think fertility fraud advocates are, are usually the offspring um, because our moms do have a hard time separating those two things. I can only imagine. And that was 2018. That was 2018. Wow. And so 2018. And then I was like, I don't really know what to do with this. So I, you know, I call our attorneys and they're like, we've never heard of anything like this. Uh, (laughs) I'll get back to you. And they got back to me with incredibly disappointing news. And the disappointing news was that there was not a civil or a criminal cause of action because it is not a crime for a doctor to inseminate his patients with his own sperm without their knowledge or consent. And because of a statute of limitations and 10-year statute of repose in Texas under the Texas Medical Board Liability Act, there was not a civil cause of action to hold him accountable. So we could go the medical board route, file a complaint, and, you know, hope that they take his license. But at that point, that would just be a forced early retirement. Um, we ultimately did end up filing that report. And he is still, he's, he still has his license. What happened was um, the board voted to take his license. He filed a restraining order and he filed a lawsuit against the medical board saying that the medical board does not have jurisdiction because of a seven-year statute of limitations for standard level of care. What the board is arguing is they are taking his license under unethical conduct and behavior, which does not carry a statute of limitations. Wow. So now, and he lost the first case and then he appealed it. So we can go all the way up to the Texas Supreme Court. And then about eight years, we'll get the final um, verdict. And he sold us to practice in between them because of their straining order. And when you say, when you say we, like we, we ended up filing that complaint, do you mean you and your mom? 
I mean, me and my mom, Jody Madeira, filed a complaint, and several of my half siblings have filed complaints. So what we do now is when we have a new half sibling, um, someone will submit a complaint because that's the only way that we can get the medical board updated information. Wow. Okay. So every time a new sibling shows up, you, you ask them to file a complaint. Right. Or we can, when we can file it on their behalf, if they don't feel comfortable just to, mm-hmm. there's also like, you know, a two-year discovery rule that, um, that comes into this as well. So there's, there's a bunch of statute limitation stuff that makes it a little more complicated. So how many, how many siblings started popping up for you once this, once this realization happened, you've talked to your mother, you're feeling shocked. And then how long until siblings start popping up everywhere? Well, I had two at that point. Um, the one that was in East Texas. And then I had the one that was older than I was. And then I had my first cousin. And you all think that they, that they're Steve's. Yeah. But we all now you're, Steve's. now you're realizing mm-hmm. they're not, but you still have, okay. Right. Woo. It's, it's not complicated, but it, it's yeah, like a I lot always, of pieces to follow. It's a lot. It, it really is. There, there's a lot of layers to the story. And so then I go back and I tell the first brother and he's like, oh yeah, see, I told you that was our biological father. Because remember, I was thinking that he was confused. And I was like, how did you know? He's like, well, I look just like him. And I'm like, what? That's not, that's not how that works. But he, you know. <laughs> he's like, except it does. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, I guess it does work. And he does look just like him. Um, and, and then I told our other brother and um, and around the same time, you know, I got, I got him that information. And then around the same time, his wife reached out to me and told me that, um, that we were never to speak to each other again, that she couldn't handle, um, another woman in his life, taking up mm. his time. And I, she felt very threatened by my presence. And I was like, okay, I will, you know, when, you know, when, and if you're ever ready, here's my contact information. And, you know, I'm his half sister. (laughs) Like I'm not, I don't think I'm threatening. Um, so, you know, there wasn't a lot of follow-up with, with that half brother past that. So, um, so anyway, then it was left with, well, what do we do? And, and my thought was, I'm going to make this about changes. I'm not going to make this about charges. And if it wasn't a crime, I was going to make it one. And, so I started working with the legislator and we were about to start session um, that spring. So Texas, they have session every two years. And in between there, I was working with ABC 2020 because I knew that in order for me to, and, and this was, this is a very hard decision for me. I had to confront my biological father. He was not honest with me. He told me there was one to two of us. He was gaslighting me the whole time. He told me that it was a, you know, pleasurable experience to be able to deliver a healthy baby girl to my parents. Very much. Please don't use the word pleasure. Right. I know. I was like, obviously, dude. Gross. And it was gratifying too. It was gratifying. And so he told me that he was a donor when he was in college and he went back to his medical school days which would have been like 14 years prior. And, um, he got his old straws from, from those days. That's what he was using and actually expected me to believe that. Right. So then I asked him, what's your donor number? He's like, Oh, I don't know. I'm like, so then how the hell did you go back to a clinic? That's not even operating anymore and get your donor straws. That that doesn't play at all. (laughs) 
so we went through this whole thing he would tell a lie i would poke a hole in it and then there was still a part of me that really thought that maybe we could work this out and you know rise above this and and so i asked him you know for me identifying that was us working together for legislation and mm -hmm. so i told him that i was going to if, th if this was the thinking at the time because we didn't know the scope of the problem right mm -hmm. if this was the thinking at the time then why don't we come together and we say hey this is wrong but look at what we're doing together to close that loophole and and that is our path to healing is rising above level playing ground and making this about something larger than ourselves well he didn't like that idea so um <laughs> <laughs> he just thought I should be really grateful because I have doctor's genes. I see what you're saying. And the answer is no. Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's like, oh, but that would require for my reputation to be harmed. And that's not going to happen. So I was like, okay, well, I'm doing it with or without you anyway. So if you don't want to be a part of that narrative, I guess I'm going to have to be the narrative. And, and, and that was also a very important part of my healing. Um, was finding a purpose in the pain and doing something with it mm -hmm. and and for me narrative therapy has been so important i i did not create create this i didn't make these choices that led me to where i am and it's really hard to work through me being the one to have to reap those consequences of something that that i didn't do and so it was very empowering for me to be able to decide what to do with it how to do it and I get to decide when I'm done. Mm -hmm. I get to decide when the period is on the last page and I get to close the book. And, and so for me, what that looked like in that path was legislation. So I went through Texas legislature and we passed a criminal cause of action for fertility fraud. And it is a, it is in our sexual assault penal codes, because when I explained this to one of my authors of how, when a doctor, when a woman comes in in the eighties, and a doctor preps her cervix and you know her vagina goes into the next room he masturbates and under a state of arousal returns and deposits his sperm inside of her and that you know that includes digitally penetrating her vagina Ugh. under that state of arousal and doesn't tell her that it's his sperm she's like that is a sexual assault that is a form of medical rape like because you can't determine when the sexual experience begins and ends we can look at oh refractory period I mean, we could talk about all that that all day long he's still in that state i'm so glad you actually talked about it so graphically because we yeah. i have i have i've uh i actually didn't know all of that and i but i knew i knew i knew i knew there was master you know i knew there was masturbating and then i knew it was like real fresh hot sperm um yeah. so so but but so often we sort of like dance around the details and and mm -hmm. um and so i think that's that's awesome i think that was really important for you to to explain it like that it really gets uh creepy really fast yeah well it really hits you on a different level when you think of it that way because the reason why is because back you know in the 60s 70s 80s you know a lot of people thought that it was adultery and so in order for them to have a business and and get people comfortable enough to use donor gametes to have another man's baby they had to separate sex from that and they did a great job right right so you know i think it is important to really talk about the details of what it is like for a woman to receive an iui with donor sperm or sperm in general because it does it hits a little differently mm -hmm. um to to really understand how um 
you know, how complex and how wrong morally and ethically that is. So that went through and it passed. That was in May of 2019. So almost a year after I found out um, that that bill passed. It feels like you worked fast. I worked really fast. They told me it would take years to get it done. Um, but I, I think, well, I think for two reasons. And we got started so late. We had less than 48 hours to file. And I mean, my authors were, they were amazing. They were just champions, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I went to Austin every single week from the end of January to May. And I met with legislators. I mean, I get, I was meeting with upwards of 15 people a day in offices and telling my story. Um, and so I worked that bill so hard to get support um, over and over and over again every week. And so I would leave Dallas at 5 a.m. and get home at 9 p.m. Um, and, uh, you know, who I really credit the success to is my biological father's best friend, Representative Travis Clardy. And Travis Clardy is someone that I've known my entire life um, as well. And we went to the same church for a while. And anyway, so I was there. I was not asking him to support the bill because I knew he wouldn't support the bill. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I did get a meeting with him because, you know, he's going to see me in the halls. And it was just a courtesy to be like, Representative McClarty, I'm here. And I, this is what I'm here for. I, I just want to let you know that this is what I'm here for. And he wouldn't let me talk. He was like, oh, I know this story. And it sounds like there's some consent. I mean, he tried to gaslight me. He told me that I was pretty and it, lo it looks like it worked out well for me. I have a duty to honor my mother and my father. And I'm like, well, so you're telling me he's my father in that sense. But then you're also telling me that he's not my father. I'm confused. And so he just kept going and going and going about how, you know, my mom consented to this and what I'm doing is wrong and I'm destroying a good man's life. And I mean, this whole thing. And he was like, and he's, he's not going to let the bill pass. And so my lobbyists and, and Travis Clardy, they started like yelling at each other and we ended it because we obviously were not seeing eye to eye on this issue. And I told him, okay, well, watch me. Like I, this is going to pass. <laughs> and so I went and told my representative who authored this bill about the, the entire interaction. And Travis was right behind me to tell her to kill the bill. And she said, no, you know, it's wrong. It has nothing to do with your constituent and your friend. And, and you know that this is wrong and we're going to pass it. Well, how he helped me was because every single meeting I took, the one question they ask you is, what is your opposition? And at the time, Travis Clardy was my only opposition. And so <laughs> I had to tell every single woman, <laughs> every single man that I met with the story and the conversation of Travis Clardy. And you better bet it pissed so many people off that not only did they vote for the bill, they signed up to co-author the bill. So I had like 28 sponsors on my bill. Wow. Because of that. But it, it, but it's ironic, right? Uh -huh. It's like, because I don't know if it would have passed, if it wouldn't have been for that meeting with Travis Clardy and, you know, me being able to tell that story. So, um, so anyway, thank you, Representative Clardy. I wouldn't have been able to do this without you. Thank you. Thank you, Representative Clardy. Yes. It's all because of you. Here's your shout out. Forward your thank you notes to him. Yeah, exactly. So then from there, um, the 2020 episode came out, the story was broke. And, and that was the other thing is, is I knew he told me there's one to two. I was sitting there looking at this computer screen and there were, I had two matches. So 
I don't have, how do, how do you find your, your half siblings? The only thing I knew how to do was to come forward and maybe someone would see themselves in me or, or a parent would be like, oh my God, we use that office. And they would. That's what I was imagining was that lots of parent, older people would be like, oh, oh." yeah, but it was shocking because, and I, and I kind of knew this would happen because I knew his reputation. He is this pillar in the community and he's an elder in his church of Christ and everyone loves him. I mean, he really is. I remember my experiences with Dr. McMorris, my biological father, is him being the most gentle and kind man ever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very soft-spoken and just very sweet. And which is hard, right? Because I've seen this this other side and, you know, it's not matching up. None of it's really matching up. And so, and the community treated it as such. I was very much the the devil mm-hmm. and but this is total rape culture, right? Really going after, you know, the victim and well, but she got what she wanted. She wanted a child. What does it matter? And um, and he was the hero. And and that's how the community really circled the wagons around him and protected him. And they still protect him. There were letters to the editor about, you know, the liberal media that's destroying this man and you know, I just need to be grateful. And, you know, they had lots of um, sermons about this and how to support him and, you know, not to believe the liberal media that is taking over at the moment. And more siblings started to come in and the stories just kept getting worse. And, you know, the defining moment for me in really making that, that choice was my son. And my biggest fear was, what if I have a half sibling? I have all the information that they need for themselves or for their children and and they don't have it. And it's it's not just my health information. It's theirs. And we have some pretty serious stuff. There's heart issues and there's autoimmune disorders. And so I had a half sister who connected with me next. And the reason why she did 23andMe is because her five-month-old died. Mm. And she was trying to get genetic information at, because they wanted more kids. And she wanted to know, what do I need to know about? And she works in the community. She's in the medical community. She's scrubbing in and out of ORs with our half-brother and our biological father. And not only that, she was one of his patients at the time. And he, I mean, how hard is that to process? Your biological father giving you breast exams and vaginal exams, and you didn't know it. And then we had more pop up. And then I mean, it's like, but he's all over, but also like living in the community, accidental incest. She didn't know that her nephew was in the same class as her daughter. They didn't know that in this tiny school, in this tiny town. And so she's like, oh my God, what if they would have dated? Like, what if we didn't know this? And so, you know, it's, it just, every story got worse. And then the next sister, it was like, he delivered both of my kids and then she's sending all these pictures of our biological father holding her her daughter up and and our brother had just done a, an emergency surgery on her and it's just like what the fuck oh <laughs> so it just God. kept getting worse and oh so anyway but we're piecing it together there's there's 10 of us now um so 13 total but three of those are his social children and and then on the legislative front from there once my story was out there and came forward i started having all these people reach out to me that had discovered this thing and so with a lot of them you know for me what was really important was i didn't have someone to ask the questions i didn't have someone to make these informed decisions with right like there wasn't a blog there wasn't a book 
There wasn't this how-to guide. There wasn't a Facebook group. You know, there was no support system in place. There wasn't a therapist that specialized in this. And so I wanted to become that person so everyone can make an informed decision. I didn't know that that I could have done a um, a non-disclosure agreement. And, um, you know, what those look like is you, you go through mediation and, um, you know, sometimes there can be a payout, but you sign a non-disclosure and, and that's it. You know, that probably wouldn't have worked for me, but that could be really meaningful for a lot of people. They could pay for therapy and, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's a pathway. It is a way to hold them accountable in a landscape where there is no accountability. Um, and the other thing was if they want to work with legislation, I can help them with that. And so that's what I started to do. And so every bill that I've worked in has been in a ally position and a support system of, of someone who is like me. And so from there, we now have 10 bills that have passed some sort of fertility fraud legislation. And seven of those I have worked on with other victims. That's awesome. And we have a federal, which I'm very excited about. So whoever's listening right now, stop what you're doing. Go figure out who your members of Congress are and send them a really fast email and say, hey, sign on for HR 8600. In, In where? Everywhere and national everywhere. Federal? Yep. Okay. That is the federal bill um, that has been introduced for fertility fraud. So that will be kind of a blanket for every single state. So it's not piecemealed state by state. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's my story, or as we say in Texas, and that's how the hog ate the cabbage. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it all happened. Eve, that's amazing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not glad that, that this all happened, but I'm so glad that you have taken it upon yourself to be to be an advocate for all these people um, and found some purpose in this. Um, if people want to contact you or or um, or other like fertility fraud um, resources, how should they do that? Yeah, I'm most active on Instagram. And that Instagram handle is Eve A. Wiley. And I also have a website that is evewiley.com. And on Twitter, I'm Eve Andrews Wiley. So those are kind of the three places where I post calls to action. It's I'm very accessible on Instagram Messenger um, and through my website as well. And there's all my contact information on there. So I'm very easy to get a hold of. Amazing. One personal question. Mm-hmm. What happened with Steve? Oh, that's a good question. I didn't even get to that one. It was a very happy story. <laughs> it's a great story. So he is still dad. And the conversation telling him was the hardest part. I mean, we just cried and cried and cried. Uh, it was it was awful. That that was it was really horrible. But at the end of it, he told me he was like, This changes some things, but it doesn't change everything. And that was very meaningful to me because I knew what he meant by that. Um, when I had told other people that, they're like, you know, what? That doesn't sound good. But but I knowing him, I knew what that meant. And so he is still dad. He's still Papa. He was with us last Thanksgiving. Um, we still talk all the time. I'll be seeing him actually in LA pretty soon. Um, so he's he's still dad. And we had a lot of conversations about here are the lemons and we're going to make a lemonade margarita at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so there was, you know, a little bit of trauma bonding in there with us all coming together, but 
you know, it did. We all banded together um, and really created a strong support system so we all could heal and get through this together. And it actually made us all very much closer. Wow. Wow. Steve's what you call a good egg. He is a very good egg. And, you know, I think for him through the 23andMe and stuff, you know, he did find a lot of his biological children. And the interesting thing. Oh, right. I forgot there might also be them. Yeah, I think he's over 10 now. The interesting thing is there's only one that has really wanted to know who he is. Hmm. Um, which is pretty foreign, you know, with, you know, existing in like the donor conceived community. And, right. Where everybody you know, wants to know everything. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, wait a second, who are these DCPs that are in our group that don't want to know this amazing person? You know, I, I think that that, that going from our relationship and, and, you know, what it's like to looking at, you know, more of his biological children and, and not having something similar. I think that that was, that was a little hard for him. And so, you know, our relationship still exists in a very strong capacity and kind of, you know, fills in those gaps. Yeah. Wow. Okay, good. Glad Steve is still out there. Thanks, Steve. Very good egg. <laughs> is there anything I was supposed to ask you that I didn't ask you? No, I, I think, I think you covered I mean, it all. You, I mean, you covered it all. You were really, that was, um, I barely said anything except like, wow, amazing. You are. Yeah. You have told this story before for sure. I do talk a lot. No, <laughs> oh, I can no. talk for days probably. I'm like the, uh, as my kids say, mom, you're like the donkey on Shrek. <laughs> Keeps talking and talking mm-hmm. and talking and talking. Donkey shoot up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep. We know Shrek very well. Did anybody else have celiac or just Hutton? Oh, no, it's interesting. So um, my my girls don't have celiac. Knock on wood. I don't have celiac yet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That older brother, the first one, um, he developed celiac disease or gluten intolerance when he was 43. Ugh. And I would say there's probably nine or 10 of the half siblings that have some sort of autoimmune disorder or celiac gluten intolerance. Yeah. And then there's about five or six that have pretty serious heart conditions. Um, wow. so he, that was not reported that and cancer stuff was not reported, but we had knew like a brother, one of his social children had a brain tumor and he didn't tell me that we, I knew he had melanoma. He didn't tell me that. So now we're just kind of piecemealing our uh, medical information together. Great. Well, thank you so much for giving me your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for everything. This was awesome. Have a great day. Yeah. You too, Eve. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks again to Eve Wiley for her story and her advocacy. I am so, uh, I'm inspired by the way she looked at this challenge in front of her and decided to take it head on in a way that will have lasting impact on generations to come. If you are interested in becoming more involved with Eve Wiley and her colleagues uh, who are working to change legislation, you can head over to my website and check out resources for an MPE which takes you to a Google spreadsheet that I try to keep updated with all the ways that you can find help or be of service in our community. Otherwise, uh, if you want to get in contact directly with Eve, uh, you can find it on my Instagram at Everything's Relative Podcast. I'll definitely be posting it at the time of this episode. And if those two avenues, the, the website or the Instagram, still don't get you to where you want, you can always email me and I will do my best to help you. Uh, My email is also where you can send comments, questions, or if you want to tell your story, my email address is eve at everythingsrelativepodcast.com. 
So hey, it's one week away from the big summit in Louisville, Kentucky called Untangling Our Roots. Lots of folks from the adoptee and MPE community will be there. I'll be there. A lot of my podcast colleagues will be there. Lots of the guests you've heard on the show will be there. And I am wondering if you will be there. I just want to say, if you're there, I really am hoping that you will come and say hello to me. I would love to meet people. Um, I'd love to meet you. We'll take a picture. We'll share some stories. That's what I want more than anything. Um, and if it, if it matters to anybody, I'll have my journals with me for the special summit price of $20 flat fee instead of the Amazon price of $24 plus shipping. So save yourself enough for a cup of coffee. Uh, get it for me directly at the conference. I may also have t-shirts. We'll see how organized I get myself over the next few days. But that's it for this week, everybody. I have to go pack for, for Louisville. Um, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, supporting me and it in all the ways that you do, whether it's reviewing it in Apple Podcasts or sending me a note or sharing it with your friends. I so appreciate you. There will be a new episode next week. And until then, please take care of yourself. Drink water. Floss your teeth. Don't forget to eat your protein. Bye-bye, guys. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Eve Sturgis and Kaylin Egan and edited by Joy Rumor. Logo designed by Ivy McNally and music is used with permission from Goodbye the Band. Eve is a licensed psychotherapist, but her podcast episodes are not therapy sessions. Thank you.